Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. It was a year ago this week that the Iraqi city of Mosul, the second largest city in the country, fell to ISIS. The loss of Mosul sparked a re-examination of U.S. policy towards Iraq and ISIS. And just this week, the White House announced that it was sending over 400 military advisors to an Iraqi base that's on the front lines of the fight. On the line with me to discuss the evolution of U.S. strategy to counter ISIS in Iraq is Dr. Stephen Metz. I think he does a very good job of articulating that the White House is betting on a strategy of containment, and that's probably their best option, even though they won't publicly admit as such. Containment of ISIS, I think, is the only strategy that really makes sense. And in this conversation, Steve explains why that's the case, what containment of ISIS looks like, and the big drawbacks of this strategy. Stephen Metz is a columnist at World Politics Review, which is sponsoring this episode. World Politics Review provides uncompromising analysis of critical global trends to give policymakers, business people, and academics the context they need to have the confidence they want. The good people at World Politics Review are offering Global Dispatch's podcast listeners a two-week free trial and then a 50% discount on an annual subscription. To redeem this offer, go to about.worldpoliticsreview.com slash dispatches, and I'll post a link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love reading World Politics Review, and I think you will too. So go check out their offerings. And for now, here is Stephen Metz, columnist at World Politics Review. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll admit, like most people that watch the Iraq situation, the Middle East in general, I was really shocked by that because what I expected to happen in Iraq was for the uh, the government to retain control of Baghdad, the major cities, uh, the oil-producing regions, and to basically maybe not give ISIS a free hand at Anbar, but not to make a uh, a titanic uh, effort to regain control of Anbar. And, and the reason is that's that's simply a, a very common pattern in insurgencies that that governments realize that so long as they hold uh, the capital city, the major city, the, the resource-producing region, if there are insurgents in the, uh, the hinterlands uh, that's not really vital to them, they can kind of tolerate that. So, you know, I expected that to happen. And then there was also the uh, the, the added uh, dimension that Mosul was a city with a uh, fairly significant Kurdish population that also was long known as a... Uh, uh, a city that produced a lot of the uh, the Iraqi army's officers, even during uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. So it really was shocking that uh, you know not only that ISIS uh, 
had the uh, military capability to seize it, but that the uh, that the Iraqi government forces defending it kind of uh, crumbled and gave up as easily as they did. So I think that the, the fall of Mosul really was the signal to everyone that this was a, a, a different conflict than everyone thought it was. Uh, so that's actually precisely my next question, which is how did the fall of Mosul crystallize in policy circles in Washington, D.C., decisions about what to do about ISIS? Well, I, I think that probably the, the most important effect, the most, uh, the most profound one, was that it really showed the depths of the weakness of the Iraqi military. I mean, I think everyone knew that the, uh, the Maliki government had, uh, had uh, uh, done a lot to uh, impose sectarianism on it, that morale was low and things like that. Uh, but I don't think anyone really expected it to, uh, to to crumble quite as 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 readily as it did. And I, I mean, I really see a lot of analogies there to some things that happened in Vietnam at the time. That that once the army began to crumble, uh, Americans were kind of amazed at just how quickly it happened. So I, I think that that was probably the biggest effect among policy experts and I suspect policymakers in Washington as well was was that it was just a wake-up call on on just how bad uh, the military had become. Can you unpack that Vietnam analogy just a bit because I know it's a it's a point you make in a column in in WPR but how does that how does that play out? Well, I, you know, in, in, in Vietnam, the U.S. had, of, of course, spent decades strengthening, advising, arming uh, uh, the Vietnamese uh, military. Uh, we thought that they were actually in pretty good shape. I mean, by, by the early 1970s, I, it was the Vietnamese military who was doing most of the counterinsurgency, and the U.S. had to some extent receded to a support, advice, air power sort of role. So when uh, there was the, what became the final North Vietnamese uh, uh, offensive, I think that a lot of uh, policy experts in the U.S., policymakers, politicians, military experts, really didn't expect the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese military, to uh, to crumble as as quickly and as readily as it did. And I think uh, I think the uh, uh, what that sort of signals is that very often when the U.S. is in an advisory role to a foreign military, and we're we're, we're dealing primarily with kind of the, the the people who are like us, the officers, you know, who've been to our military schools, maybe the non-commissioned officers, uh, and we look at them and they're they're saying the right things, they're kind of doing the right things, and it's easy for us to uh, to overestimate the steadfastness, the morale of the military, because uh, the way that a military behaves, you know, when you're kind of in the barracks in the schoolhouse or something like that, is very different than the way it behaves on the battlefield. So it's just, it, it, it's hard sometimes, I think, to gauge whether a foreign military really, really has what it takes to stand up to adversity and combat versus doing, you know, what needs to be done during training and education, leader development and things like that. How would you characterize how U.S. policy has shifted in Iraq since the fall of, of Mosul? Within the Obama administration, the, uh, uh, you know, I think once everyone realized how weakened uh, and degraded the Iraqi military had become, the uh, obvious solution was well we just need to go back and redo some more training and equipping and 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 and, and things like that uh, I've been someone who's been really dubious 
of the idea that all the Iraqi military needs is kind of, you know, a helping hand, a little more training, a little more equipping, and it can kind of get back on its feet. I mean, my own personal position is that uh, it's almost, uh, it's really almost a lost cause. And, you know, if you look at even the things uh, uh, that President Obama said this week in his press conference, that, you know, he was kind of scolding the Iraqi military for not you know, kind of, uh, getting back on its feet as quickly as he would like. Uh, the problem with that is it assumes that 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 the Iraqi military is even capable of doing that, and I'm not I'm not convinced of that. So it seems that one of the assumptions underlying the strategy is that the Iraqi army is capable of getting trained by the U.S. military, and you're saying that's something of a faulty premise. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I had kind of mixed feelings on the uh, Obama strategy. I mean, I, you know, I certainly think that it's wise in avoiding uh, a greater direct uh, uh, American involvement. You know, I know there are a lot of calls for, I mean, anything from uh, U.S. troops on the ground to, you know, an expanded air campaign or whatever. I, you know, I don't think that's wise. On the other hand, the way that President Obama and his top advisors have explained the strategy, the assumption seems to be that we'll use airstrikes to kind of uh, uh, keep ISIS at bay to prevent it from making uh, uh, any further gains in the really you know the the heartland of Iraq versus the uh, the predominantly Sunni cities like the Crete and Ramadi, uh, and that will give the Iraqi. Uh, government and the Iraqi military some breathing space to kind of right the ship, and you know, and 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 I think that the Obama strategy realizes that there needs to be simultaneously political reform on the part of the Iraqi government to become more uh, inclusive of the uh, Sunni Arabs, uh, but there also needs to be military reform to try to try to you know re-steal to uh, to to recreate the morale and the and the, the the will to fight of of the of the Iraqi military. Personally, I don't think that at least in the reasonable time frame, I don't know, five years or whatever, we're going to see Iraqi military that's capable of re-exerting control over all of Iraq's territory. Uh, nor I, I do I think we're going to see an Iraqi government that's really interested in doing that. I think what the, what the Iraqi government, the military will do, will be to basically hold the line at the predominantly Shiite areas, uh, make attempts to regain the cities that it's lost at least. But I would really uh, be be absolutely surprised if there was not an ISIS presence somewhere in Anbar for a number of years to come. I wonder, you know, if, um, you know, as uh, just sort of looking, looking, you know, so you're describing something like a five-year timeline down the road. I'm yep. wondering if to the extent that, um, you know, relations between Iran and the USA uh, warm over time and then become more productive and more cooperative, if that might have some knock-on effect a few years down the road where the U.S. can be a little more, I guess, open about cooperating or working with the Iranians towards, uh, you know, reconciliation or at least defeating ISIS in, in Iraq? Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not terribly optimistic that there's going to be anything like a real functioning counter-ISIS partnership between uh, Iran and the U.S. I mean, I, to, to some extent, 
that relationship uh, will be shaped a lot by what happens in the 2016 uh, presidential election in the United States. If a Republican wins, uh, you know, I can't imagine uh, uh, even the most rudimentary uh, and tacit cooperation uh, with a Democrat, possibly, but I think even a Democratic president would, is going to have to, for domestic political reasons, uh, uh, really uh, mute uh, the, the cooperation. Uh, plus, in a light, you know, really, even a an open, overt U.S. Uh, Iranian uh, cooperation, I don't think would make a huge difference because. Uh, I, I just can't see Iran and the Shiite militias that are that it works through uh, entering, uh, exerting control over the Sunni Arab parts of uh, of uh, Iraq. So I think that Iran also is going to be perfectly satisfied to kind of hold the the line at the uh, the Shiite uh, uh, parts of of Iraq, make sure that they re- remain under the control of the government and be satisfied uh, with that. The scenario that you described in which ISIS is able to hold on to Sunni parts of the country, the hinterlands, I suppose, as you described, but eventually perhaps that the Iraqi army is able to regain control over most of its cities, it's seems to be somewhat from at least from an american perspective probably pretty dissatisfying to the extent that i mean you still have isis that you know has de facto control over a large part of of a country and seems that the trend in isis right now is to internationalize in a way maybe franchise the same way that al qaeda did and they'll have a base of operations seemingly from which to do that yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a really important point, and I, you, one of kind of the uh, the elements of you might say dissonance when the U.S. gets involved in trying to help a uh, uh, a, a partner, a regime that's facing insurgency, is that for the United States, coming out of the Western tradition, to us, the the the, the norm is that a government controls all of the territory of its country. And anything other than that is abnormal, and and we just assume that uh, you know a government wants to eradicate that. I mean, we can't imagine you know like the government of the U.S. that doesn't exert political or military control over you know Wyoming or whatever. So we assume that's the model. But if you look really around the world at nations that face internal challenges like the Iraqi regime is now, a much more normal model is for the government to, to, to kind of say to itself, listen, we know we have to control the capital, we have to control kind of the heartland of whatever, you know, ethnic group, tribe, sect, whatever uh, constitutes our elite. We have to control the uh, resource-producing regimes. But we can live with, with not controlling large parts of the hinterland. And I mean, you know, this is something that, uh, that you see even in places like Colombia, Peru, I mean, for a long period of time in El Salvador, I mean, in the Philippines and Indonesia, you know, certainly in Afghanistan. So, you know, that's difficult for Americans to grasp. I mean, to us, it's just kind of unthinkable that government can say, okay, there's, you know, 25% of our national territory where, you know, we have no control and we can't go. But that really is a very normal pattern. And I mean, and I just, I can't imagine Iraq, if it holds together, uh, doing anything different. Now, what makes ISIS, you know, a little different than that is simply the extent of its viciousness and barbarity. I mean, in Colombia, when you had the uh, FARC controlling, 
you know, large parts of territory or, you know, the, the New People's Army of the Philippines or whatever. They weren't doing the kind of, you know, barbaric brutality that ISIS was. So that kind of makes it more difficult for us to accept the notion that they might retain control over a long period of uh, a time of some bit of territory. Uh, but kind of the, the second part of your question there, I really don't accept the idea at all that somehow an ISIS that controls chunks of eastern Syria and western Iraq uh, poses some sort of direct threat to Western Europe or the United States that it might not otherwise. I think uh, a lot of times, we, you know, we, we our, our mentality has been so shaped by what happened with Al-Qaeda in 9-11, and we kind of make this mental connection between the fact that Al-Qaeda had camps in Afghanistan and they were able to do 9-11. Uh, having thought and read and uh, a lot about that issue over the last 14 years, I've never really seen anyone make a conclusive case that had Al-Qaeda not had those bases in Afghanistan, it would not have been able to engineer 9-11. So what I'm getting at here is I, I really don't see that as making them more likely or more capable of inspiring or launching terrorist strikes at Western Europe or the United States well, than it already is. What about this idea or, or the reality of having thousands of foreign fighters from Europe uh, and even some from the United States apparently flock to Syria uh, to join ISIS's ranks and then eventually they'll be you know rotated out of the ranks back to uh, back to Western Europe, where you know they don't necessarily need a visa to enter the United States and can, right. you know, inflict their harm. Well, I mean, you know, th th that certainly is a problem, and at least you know everything I'm seeing is that the intelligence and law enforcement and security services in countries outside the region are, you know, very very focused on that, on monitoring uh, these folks and so forth. Uh, but while it's a problem and while it's it's absolutely right that we should be concerned with it, uh, I, I don't think that someone who has traveled from, you know, Britain, France, Belgium, United States, whatever, gone to Syria, got some kind of uh, uh, guerrilla or military training is going to be significantly more of a threat than some, you know, some some putz who's just inspired by ISIS mm -hmm. who picks up a gun and goes to a movie theater or a mall or whatever and starts shooting people. In other words, there is a threat there, but I just don't see it as as making a huge decisive difference, the fact that these guys are veterans of those conflicts, than if they're just somebody who happens to be sitting at a computer in the U.S. somewhere and is, is mm -hmm. inspired by them. And I, I but, think I, but, I agree with you on that point. So, um, so, so what I'm saying is it's important. It, it deserves attention, but I don't see it as – I just don't buy the notion that, that if somebody goes in and gets military experience, they're going to they're gonna, uh, produce some you know, monumental threat that they wouldn't otherwise pose if they come back to Western Europe or the United States. You hear over and over again that at, at the root of – the crisis in, in Iraq is is a political crisis with the inability of the Sunni and, and Shia political parties to accommodate each other, not to mention even even the, the, the Kurds. I, I, I kind of 
question that assumption to kind of back up a little bit because uh, you know a point that, uh, that that someone made on Twitter that was kind of one of these light bulb goes on moments for me is they say you know the the, the current U.S. policy is totally focused on this idea that that what caused all of this was that the Shiite dominated Iraqi government was not inclusive enough toward the Sunni Arabs. And I mean, okay, that's a problem. You know, I, I hope the government solves it. Uh, Iraq would be a better place if it does. But on the other hand, we're now seeing ISIS uh, establish foothold in Libya and Afghanistan. We're seeing, you know, ISIS equivalents and and Shabbat uh, in uh, in Somalia, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria. So what I'm getting at here is that while the the kind of the Sunni Shiite political problems in Iraq are an element that need to be solved. I don't think they are what caused the ISIS phenomenon. I think it's something much more uh, primal and deeper than that. In fact, that the, 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 the column I wrote uh, uh, recently for uh, a World Politics Review is uh, making the point that, that, that uh, we have to understand that a lot of the foreign fighters uh, that are that are flocking to Iraq to, to join ISIS really don't care about you know local Sunnis are excluded from the Iraqi Parliament or something like that. I mean their 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 motives are much more primal in terms of seeking empowerment through this kind of uh, mythological fictionalized view of violence. You know violence is liberation. So what I'm getting at here is that I think that even if tomorrow the Sunni-Shiite uh, political problems in Iraq can be magically solved. I don't think that makes ISIS go away. I think it's still going to exist in Iraq, or if not there, it, it, it'll simply uh, 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 focus on Libya, on Yemen, or, or somewhere else. And also, I'd imagine Syria, too. I mean, to what well, extent yeah, can yeah. you disaggregate ISIS in Iraq from ISIS in, in Syria? Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people have pointed out, and I think this is absolutely true, that, that probably the deepest, most fundamental shortcoming of the Obama strategy for ISIS right now is that it really only focuses on the Iraq part of the problem. So, you know, uh, ISIS is still going to be as barbaric. It's still going to do what it can to inspire violence against the West, even if it's somehow on the other side of the Iraq-Syria border. And, you know, and, and at least I'm not seeing anything in the Obama strategy that says, yes, once the Iraqi military regains control of Iraq, you know, this, this is how we're going to solve the ISIS problem in eastern Syria. And, and finally, I love your, your formulation in a column uh, of, of the U.S. strategy, which is to avoid failure, but also avoid success. Well, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a number of debates uh, this week with 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 people to kind of uh, this 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 criticism of the Obama uh, strategy that it's not a strategy for victory and so forth. My own position is that containment of ISIS, I think, is the only strategy that really makes sense. The problem is the Obama administration can't say that. So, I mean, I think what they're doing is actually pursuing a policy of containment while rhetorically pretending it's a strategy for victory. And to me, I mean, containment makes sense against an opponent where the strategic cost of defeating them decisively outweigh the strategic benefits that one would gain by doing so. And the second 
uh, element that it takes for containment to work is if you believe that the adversary has such deep flaws that if you hold it in check for an extended period of time, then you know what the, 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 the Soviets used to call the correlation of forces will change and it will actually be easier for you to resolve it. I mean, to me, when I look at the ISIS problem, those conditions hold for the United States. I mean, ISIS is not a direct or, or growing threat to the United States. The strategic cost of resolving it, of you know, stabilizing not only western Iraq but eastern Syria, are extensive. And I think that, 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 that over time, uh, ISIS will weaken if it can't expand. So I, to me, at least, I, you know, I think that this is a classic type of adversary where a strategy of containment makes sense. The problem is, for political reasons, the administration can't say that. Containment in Iraq seems to make sense to the extent that, you know, the, the scenario you described earlier plays out in which ISIS is relegated to the Sunni hinterlands. But, you know, the the conflict in Syria can drag on for years and years and years. I mean, there's no yeah. end in sight there. Um, and that seems like a ripe opportunity for ISIS to, to draw support as opposed to being sort of choked off in, in Iraq. I, I, yeah, I have uh, no doubt that they're going to be able to sustain themselves in some way. And and always the big underside of a strategy of containment, I mean, even you go back to containment of the Soviet uh, Union, is that it, it is the human cost. I mean, you know, we all know that by pursuing a policy of containment rather than rollback of the Soviet Union, we relegated, you know, hundreds of millions of people to live under Soviet oppression for decades and decades. That's the problem with contain, or one of the problems with containing ISIS is that it, 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 it relegates uh, many, many people to living under barbarity for an extended period of time. You know, the other problem with containment for the US, from the U.S. perspective is that it's a really, really difficult sell uh, domestically, you know, because we have people who are seeing ISIS's barbarity on television day after day, and they're angry, they're indignant, you know, they, they just, you know, it, it, it's intolerable. So, I mean, I, I can understand why the Obama administration isn't talking about it, simply because it's such a hard sell domestically. But then there were people back in the late 1940s when George Kennan came up with the strategy of containment. I mean, Walter Lippmann was one saying, listen, you can never sell the American people on this. It's just, you know, American people are impatient. They want victory. They don't want containment. You know, this will never work. But a series of presidents were able to do it. I mean, my own advice, if anyone would ever listen to me to uh, not only this administration, but whoever follows it, is that, that while it will be politically a hard sell, sell you, you need to convince the American people, the Congress, and so forth, uh, that this is an adversary uh, where containment makes sense, where the strategic cost of decisively defeating it and reconstructing and stabilizing uh, this region simply uh, it d- does not just you know the the, the strategic benefits don't uh, justify the strategic cost and and one one reason for that is because once you you know defeat ISIS and Iraq and Syria and stabilize that then you're going to have to do the same thing in Libya and Yemen and you know who knows where else so it's you know our adversary is a phenomenon not an organization simply destroying the organization as it exists in Iraq is not going to resolve the problem. Uh, Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Sure. All right. Thank you 
all for listening. I thought that was a very good articulation of the current U.S. strategy for Iraq. Even though it's not a strategy the U.S. government is necessarily willing to articulate on its own behalf. So this was great. Thank you to Stephen Metz. Thank you to the World Politics Review. Go check out worldpoliticsreview.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye.